You can turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. We've been talking about what it means to be human. God's creation of humanity in His image and how each person is created with inherent dignity and value. Like we matter to God and what we do matters on this earth. We've looked, up, we've looked at the makeup of humanity and we saw that there are both material and immaterial aspects of us. We have physical bodies, but we also have souls or, or spirits that we are created as a unified whole. And our final state will be a unified whole, that we will be um, with God, body, and soul. Last week, we looked at how God has made us male and female, and how God set up marriage as the union between a man and a woman, and how God created a sexual relationship for husband and wife. And we're going to continue this line of study as we look at holy sexuality today. Now, I just want to warn you, I don't see any kids here, but if there are any hiding under the pews, parents, I want you to be aware, this is adult content warning. We are going to be um, not overly graphic, but we'll, we'll talk about some specifics that we need to understand as adults as we live both body and soul in a holy way before God. Now, I don't want you to lose track of the grand scheme of what we've been talking about over these last many, many months. We are called as followers of Jesus to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. How even though mankind is fallen and broken and deserving of judgment, God set out to save us. And this is our message, a message of hope, not of condemnation, but a message of hope. And as we started talking about how we share this message, we looked at Jesus himself and how Jesus embodied grace and truth. He was full of compassion. He proclaimed forgiveness, but he also called people to repentance and holiness. You can't have one side without the other, but our message has to be full of grace and truth. And as we begin to talk about sexuality today and what God calls us to in holiness, we need to remember that we are talking about people and not just issues or ideas. I've been reading an author, his name is uh, Preston Sprinkle. You're actually going to hear from him in a video just in, in just a little while. He, he writes a book, and the title of the book is People to be Loved. And we need to remember that when we talk about these things, that we are talking about people's lives. We're talking about their desires, their hopes, their dreams. We're talking about their failures, their shortcomings, their brokenness. Not just them, but ours as well. How we are looking at what God says in his word and how we are to live it out in our lives and experience life the way that God created it to be experienced. So we want to approach this with grace and truth. And last week we specifically looked at both singleness and marriage and how both are gifts of God. And we're all called to use our gifts for the good of other people. That marriage or singleness, they both have unique blessings and unique challenges. We need to live in a right way before God. We, we specifically looked at what marriage is, and we saw this pattern for marriage in Genesis 2.24. That it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And so we define marriage as the lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, and we saw that sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. Hebrews 13.4, that marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed should be kept pure. And we saw that it is the consistent teaching of Scripture that sex outside of that relationship is against God's design. It's ultimately destructive. So as we look at the landscape and the way things are in our world, and the public debates and the culture wars and all these types of things, 
we naturally begin to ask the question, what does God say about the things that we see? And so today we're, we're going to be looking at our same-sex sexual relationships. And the question is, what about these? Is it permitted? Can two people of the same sex be married? What does the Bible say about same-sex sexual relationships? And just as kind of an overview, we're going to get into the details. But again, reiterate what we just said a few moments ago. That throughout Scripture, marriage is described as a one-flesh union between a man and a woman. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2 that we looked at last week where it says uh, God created mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. And then we saw in Genesis 2.24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and the two become one flesh. They they, um, uh, establish a, a new family unit. When Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, he goes straight back to Genesis 1 and 2, those things that I just talked about. And he describes what marriage is supposed to be in light of the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2. When Paul discusses marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife in Ephesians 5, he goes right back to Genesis 2. And he talks about how marriage is supposed to be a picture of the love between Christ and the church. Now, the teaching of Paul, we looked at this in depth last week, is not that everybody is supposed to be married. Singleness is good as well. It's holy and pleasing to God. But um, the the marriage relationship is supposed to reflect the love between Christ and the church. This is the Bible's consistent teaching on marriage. Now, when we ask the question about same-sex sexual relationships, again, we just remember we're, we're talking about people and not just issues. We, we see this, that the Bible consistently teaches that same-sex sexual relationships are immoral, that they are prohibited. And there are six passages that are often cited when we try to answer this question about same-sex behavior. Those passages are this, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. We're going to look deeply at two of these passages today, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. And let me tell you why I'm going to leave out the others, all right? Not because they're not important, but they're, they're related. First of all, I want to remind you that Genesis 19 is the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember, a God comes down with two angels. They meet with Abraham. God says, I'm going to destroy this town because of its wickedness. And the angels go into the town, and the men of the town surround Lot's house, and they say, bring those guys out because we want to have sex with them, right? And God ultimately ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And many people over the centuries have looked at that and said, see, God condemns homosexuality. But there are many modern um, interpreters and uh, modern proponents of same-sex relationships say that's, that's not a fair comparison. And I think in terms of that critique, it's, it's probably accurate. Because we're not just talking about monogamous, consensual, same-sex relationships in that story. That's what modern proponents are advocating for. And they say the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with that. It's about a story of gang rape. I think it's probably okay to just set that one aside. We don't need to um, use that in our argument. It's not necessarily a fair comparison, so we're just going to set that aside for now. All right? Romans chapter 1, the New Testament, we have teaching about same-sex sexual relationships. And 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uses a, a particular word in 1 Corinthians 6. And the background for this word is Leviticus 18 and 20. So if we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6, we'll connect that to Leviticus 18 and 20. And also that same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 6 is used in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if we understand it in 1 Corinthians 6, then we also know what it means in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So we can look at two of these passages in depth and cover the breadth of them. Remember, we're setting aside Genesis 19 because it's just not a good analogy for today. Okay? So let's begin to look at what the Scriptures say because we're going to wrestle with the truth of God and then talk about how to apply it to our lives. Now, let's read 
1 Corinthians, excuse me, Romans, Romans 1, starting with verse 18. We have read this multiple times over the past three, four, five, six months, right? So hopefully this is familiar to you, but we're going to go back so we have full context of what we're talking about. He starts off the book by talking about how the gospel is God's righteousness revealed. And in verse 18 he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And you remember a number of months ago, we studied this in depth as we talked about the judgment of God. How we as human beings, every single one of us, has fallen short of God's glory. And in the next chapter, he's going to look at those people who were trying to be good people, who were trying to do moral things, and he's going to say, by the way, you fail by your own standards. If you pass judgment on the people in this particular list, you do the same things. If you're uh, guilty of breaking the law, then you are deserving of judgment. And so all people have rejected God, and all people are guilty and deserve judgment and are in need of forgiveness. And he goes on and he launches into this beautiful explanation of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross in Romans chapter 3. How he paid the price for our sins, the wrath of God that we deserve is satisfied because it was poured out on Christ, and we have opportunity to live in God's grace and forgiveness and joy and peace because of what Jesus has done for us. So there's a specific passage here in Romans 1, verses 24 through 27, that talk about sexual sin in general, and then specifically, same-sex sexual relationships. So if you look at verse 24, it says, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. As we talk about God's judgment, and you'll remember, those months ago when we talked about it, part of God's judgment is God stepping back and removing his protection and saying, you want to reject me? Okay, you can have the consequences. And three times in this passage, it says that God gave them over to what they wanted to do. And so here, uh, there's this rejection of God, and they fall into sexual sin. They're worshiping created things rather than the Creator. And then it goes on a few verses later, and it talks about how God gave them over to shameful lust, that their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And there's a couple of important words here that we want to talk about. We have women having sex with other women. And there are two phrases. They're both natural and unnatural. What do these, what do these words mean? Natural, the, the, the specific um, wording is according to nature. And then unnatural is against nature. And there's debate about what this means. 
And when we begin to dig into these words and try to figure out, okay, what is it that Paul is saying? What is it that God's saying about these relationships? What makes them against nature? And it's interesting that what, what this phrase means, it means against the, the design of nature or against the design of the creator. In other words, God created something with a certain purpose in mind, and when that is ignored and rejected, it is wrong, just like any other sin. Now, Paul is not the first person to use this phrase against nature. This phrase against nature is common in the ancient world and in ancient writers. And it is regularly used to describe same-sex sexual relationships. So men having sex with men or women having sex with women consistently, not just Christian teachers, moral philosophers of the Greeks called these um, uh, behaviors against nature or against design. So Paul is saying that um, this goes against God's created order. He probably has Genesis 1 and 2, male and female. Uh, a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife. He has this in the background that this, these relationships are against God's design. All right, so it says that God gave them over to their shameful lust and that men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with their passion for one another and men committed these shameless acts with other men. So what he's communicating here is part of the fall in this grand scope of God reject, uh, mankind rejecting God, they are walking away from the created design of loving relationship, um, being in connection with him and in loving relationship with one another, and they are departing from what God intended. And therefore, it is wrong. It's important that we notice, and we'll talk about this again in a minute, that this is included in an entire list of sins. It's not included as the highest sin or the deepest form of sin or anything. He actually takes the progression even further. He says they're, they're sinning in their bodies, but they also have a depraved mind, and he lists these things. This isn't a whole list. This is a few of the things he mentions. Um, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, malice, envy, slander, murder, deceit, strife, gossips, calls them, they're people who are God-haters, they're insolent, they're arrogant, they're boastful, there's no, no love, there's no mercy, right? This whole slew of things that are against God's purposes and God's design. And again, that's, that's not the whole list. You can go back and see as he describes how mankind has rejected God and because of that is worthy of judgment. So Romans 1 teaches that these relationships are immoral, they're outside of God's design. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. The context here is interesting because he, he's going to talk about some sexual sin in a few verses later after the passage that we read. But he starts by talking about the contention that's in the church, and he describes that... Um, People are taking one another to court. And he's like, you shouldn't be going to court against your brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, if there's a dispute, you should be figuring out a way to resolve it that doesn't involve taking them to court and suing them. Because in that way, you're wronging your brother. And he says, anyone who wrongs his brother or sister is, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on here in verse 9, he says this. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he's telling them, hey, don't take each other to court, you're wronging each other. And by the way, people who do wrong things are not going to inherit the kingdom. And he gives a list of people who do wrong things. In this list is this phrase, men who have sex with men. And we need to really understand what this means. Because in, in past um, Bible translations, it was translated homosexual offenders or homosexuals. Or, um, there's been a broad range of translations. And the NIV, I think, is, is fairly accurate, but we want to understand what's going on here. Uh, men who have sex with men, the, the two terms 
or excuse me, that, that phrase translates two terms. I'm going to say them in Greek and we'll talk about what they mean. Uh, the first one is, is malakoi, and the second is arsenikoite. Now, all of you Greeks out there know exactly what I'm describing, right? Uh, let's look at the first one, the, the word malakoi. This word simply means soft. Make sure we're here. Yep. Uh, so it could be used to describe a, a, a garment, a piece of clothing that was soft. But in the ancient world, in Paul's day, it was, used to dis- it was also used to describe um, men who were acting like women. And it could cover a whole range of things. It didn't specifically mean someone who had sex with an, a man who had sex with another man, but it could cover a range of things. Um, something like shaving your chest hair was considered unmanly. All right. Um, dressing up like a woman and wearing perfume and women's hairstyles would have you would have been called malakoi, right? In conjunction with that, someone who was soft. This is a term they would have used for the passive partner in the same-sex sexual relationship. And I know if that gets a little too graphic for you, I'm sorry, but this is what we have to wrestle with as we think about how we honor God, both body and soul. So the one who was receiving from the other person would have been called malakoi, right? So it doesn't have to mean that, but there was a range of meaning, and it would, have, it would have meant that. And as we look at this next term, that's what really helps us understand that in this passage. All right? So the second term is arsenikoite. All right? Now, this is a compound word. It is a combination of two Greek words, the words for man and the word for bed. All right? And as we look at Greek literature and try to figure out the background and meaning of this word, Paul might have been the first one to use this word. Like, Paul might have made this word up to describe this relationship. This is the word that, again, is used in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in in, in that list of vices. So this word is used after Paul, after the time of Paul, but we really don't have any examples of usage before. So Paul might be the first one. He He may have made this word up. And, well, what is the background then? How are we supposed to understand this word? Well, when we look at the Old Testament, there is a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, or you'll often see it abbreviated LXX, and it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, right? There are a bunch of Jews, they want to know what God said, but they don't all speak Hebrew because they come from other places, they speak Greek. So just like we translate the Bible into English, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And when we read both Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, in that Greek Old Testament, we see these laws. And I'm specifically going to look at just chapter 18, verse 22. It says, do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman. That's the NIV translation. But something that would have been more akin to the Greek translation would have been, you shall not lie in bed with a man as with a woman. Now, lie in bed is a, is a euphemism for sex. We're not just talking about sleeping, okay? We're talking about a, a euphemism, a nice way of saying have sex, right? So the word bed, koite, and the word man, arson, and God combines them, I mean, excuse me, and Paul combines them together to make this word arsenikoite, and it simply means this, a man lying in bed or having sex with another man, all right? So this phrase appears within this list, of things that are wrong to do. Same-sex behavior is prohibited. Now, as I did with the last verse, with Romans, I want to emphasize that this particular sin is included among a list of sins. Because very often, we can get zeroed in on what we think other people ought to do and not look at ourselves. And we can lack compassion. We can reject people and turn away in disgust for their particular sins while basically ignoring others. So let's look at this list. He talks about people who are sexually immoral. This would be any sex outside of marriage is what this term uh, describes. Idolaters, people putting things before God. 
Adulterers, men who have sex with men is on the list. Thieves, so people who steal. Greedy, people who are hoarding wealth, who are always looking for more. Uh, drunkards, people who are just have too much alcohol. Slanderers, people who talk bad about other people is what that means. Like we can say uh, slanderer, it sounds, sounds like a term that we don't use very often, so we're just okay with it. But it's just basically you talk bad about people, then you're on the list. Swindlers, people who take advantage of people. But watch what he says. That is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He points to the fact of forgiveness and renewal and right relationship with God. And I want to ask you, as we think about any sin, whether we're talking about same-sex sexual relationships or any other sin, how do you see people? Do you see the brokenness and sin, or do you see the potential of redemption? And this is important because we need to ask ourselves, like, how do we treat those people who sin? Because sometimes, and, and I've seen this, and, and you've seen this, when you see a, a, a couple that's in a, a same-sex relationship, you, you turn the other way, or you turn in disgust, or you mock and you ridic ridicule them. And I want to ask you, do you treat other people who sin that way? When you sin, do you treat yourself that way? I'm going to get graphic for a moment here, right? What about the person who's sitting at home on their computer watching porn, pleasing themselves? Do you make fun of them? Do you reject them? Or do you go, mm, I've done that before. What is, the like, what is the response? He says, he talks about drunkards here. What about the, the relative who's addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs? Do you sit back and make fun of their decisions in life? Or turn away from them in disgust? Or is your heart broken over them and their relationships and their children that are destroyed because of what the parents are doing? Greedy. Gosh, am I living tight-fistedly? Like, I got a house full of stuff and I'm always looking on the internet about what to buy? Like, that's a problem. And we want to minimize that problem. It's on the list, people. It's on the list. Slanderers. Going to a friend and talking bad about somebody else. Or going to work and tearing somebody else down. It's on the list. And if we're going to talk about sin, we're going to talk about every sin. We're not just going to pick one and say we're going to talk about those people and their problems. No. It's an us problem. We are sinful human beings. And we are all in need of God's grace. And we need to be careful that when we start pointing out the logs in other people's eye, that we're not paying attention to the logs in our own. We need to come to God humbly and repent because there is hope for us, for everyone, that we are all sinners and we are in need of grace. And God says um, that I can wash you, I can sanctify you, I can justify you if you will come to me and humble yourselves and repent. And we need to be careful how we're treating people and how we're responding to people. We've got some other things that we need to cover today. But remember, we're talking about people who are made in the image of God, and God loves them, and it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. So there are some counter-arguments as we talk about the biblical arguments, what these texts mean. And I want to touch on those briefly. One of the arguments is, as people examine Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and these other passages, they'll say the people of Paul's day, um, they didn't know anything about sexual orientation. They didn't know anything about same-sex marriage, that these are new concepts. So when Paul gives these prohibitions, he didn't have uh, gay marriage in mind. He was talking about something else. He was condemning other types of same-sex behavior. Now, this is rampant in the ancient world. When you do some study and do some reading, like, this is all over the place. And so they'll say Paul was talking about excessive lust, that he was talking about prostitution, where there was male prostitution and female prostitution. He's talking about the abuse of slaves, right? Like if, if you owned somebody else, you could use them for your own pleasure, basically, and it didn't matter whether it was male or female. So that's what Paul has in mind here. He was talking about uh, a common practice called pederasty, 
And this is where uh, older Greek men, older Roman men would take boys and young adolescents under their wings and they would abuse them sexually, but they would shower them with gifts and favors and basically court these younger men and boys. And the argument is when Paul prohibits same-sex behavior, he's talking about these things and not consensual, loving, same-sex relationships. Now, this stuff was rampant in the ancient world. Um, Exploiting other people sexually was commonplace. But same-sex, consensual, monogamous relationships were not unheard of. There is evidence in the literature that there were men who were committed to each other. Especially when we talk about women, most of those relationships, uh, uh, women with other women, they were not exploitative at all. They were um, considered loving and consensual, and it was not something that was abusive. So what are, what are we saying with this? Well, if Paul only wanted to condemn pederasty or prostitution or any other form of this, he could have used those words. There was language available to him to describe those relationships And what we see is he doesn't use those words. He maybe even makes up a word to describe a general category of um, same-sex behavior. So the language of Romans 1 and the language of 1 Corinthians 6 is general language prohibiting the entire category, not one particular problem behavior. All right? A second argument that you'll see that that you're going to encounter as well, Jesus never condemned same-sex behavior. In fact, Jesus never talks about same-sex relationships. Um, so it's okay. Jesus didn't say it was wrong, so we can do it. Well, here's the thing. Why didn't Jesus ever talk about this? First of all, same-sex relationships were not debated in Jesus' day. Among the Jews, his context No one had the question of whether or not this was okay. Everyone accepted it as wrong. So when Jesus gets asked questions about marriage, he gets asked questions about divorce. Because remember we talked last week, there's this debate about marriage and divorce. And is it okay to get divorced and all these things. So Jesus gets asked questions about the debates of the day and Jesus responds to those. The Jews didn't ask a question about this because everyone accepted it as immoral. It's also important to note, important to note out, to note that um, Jesus never explicitly condemns rape. Jesus doesn't say anything about incest. He doesn't say anything about having sex with children. He doesn't say anything about having sex with animals. If we use the same logic, are we, are we to conclude that those things are okay? The answer is obviously not. Everyone in that day understood those things to be wrong. There, there was no debate, so that's why Jesus doesn't have to address it because everybody has that as in this Jewish society, everybody has that foundational understanding. So the argument that Jesus never explicitly says this is wrong, therefore it's okay, is a, is a bad argument. Jesus consistently teaches that God created male and female, and that a man would be united to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. And he affirms this view of marriage. Another question that we can ask, can a Christian be gay? It's really important that we ask a follow-up question. What do you mean by the term gay? Because as you talk with people who are gay or lesbian, you'll soon come to find out that they use the term gay in many, many, many different ways. Not every individual person means the same thing when they use the word gay. So there might be different answers. Here here are two of them. Are they describing engaging in same-sex behavior, same-sex sexual relations? Or are they simply describing what we call today same-sex attraction? There are Christians who experience same-sex attraction. They have desires for sexual relationships, romantic relationships with people of the same sex. Does that automatically mean they're in sin? Or are we talking about people engaging in same-sex sex? sex? It's important to remember in Scripture that attraction 
is not sin. Temptation is not sin. What the Bible calls sin is lust and sexual activity outside of marriage. So when we think about the question, is it, is it, can there be a gay Christian? Well, if by gay you simply mean they're attracted to someone of the same sex, well, well yes, you can follow Jesus and struggle with desires that you're um, uh, not going to fulfill. But if you're engaged in same-sex activity, then that's a problem. And here's some things, people differ on this, but, but I'm going to give you what I consider helpful. Is our sexual attractions or desires should not be a core piece of our identity. I personally don't think it's helpful, even if you're not engaging in same-sex behavior, I don't think it's helpful to call yourself a gay Christian. Number one, because people don't know what you mean by gay, because there's so much diversity there. And two, your desires don't define you. We talked about this last week. Marriage is not the highest form of human love. If you're married and you're in a sexual relationship with another person, those desires that you have, they are not the core of your identity. Jesus Christ is the core of your identity. And you bring your marriage relationship under the headship of Jesus Christ. And he becomes what your life is about. Not the other person trying to completely complete you or make you happy or anything of that sort. So I don't think it's helpful to make our sexual attractions and desires part of the understanding of our identity. On the other hand, it's not wrong to acknowledge that we sin, that we fall short, that we have desires that aren't holy. So we can share our struggles and desires with one another. It shouldn't be okay for someone to go in a small group setting, hey, I need you to pray for me, I'm really struggling with pride. And then someone around the table goes, hey, I need you to pray for me, I'm really struggling with same-sex attraction. Everybody go, ooh, we'll pray for the pride guy, but this guy we don't know what to do with. Like, that's not how it's supposed to be. We should be open and honest about our sharing. And if we're going to reject people or, or stand away from them and distance ourselves because they, they have a particular sin, then we're missing the boat. So then the hard question, I know we're going long today, but this is important stuff. Can you hang in with me for a few more minutes? We started off with this idea of grace and truth, that Jesus embodied both grace and truth. He had compassion, but he also called people to holiness. So the question is, like, how do we show compassion and remain faithful to the truth? I, um, as we think about that question, there's a lot of stuff to dive into, but I want to share a video with you this morning. Welcome to Grace Truth 2.0, where we're going to dive a bit deeper into questions about faith, sexuality, and gender. As always, we need to keep at the forefront of our minds the foundational point we made in Grace Truth 1.0, that we're not just talking about issues, we're talking about people. And as we think about people, the leading question I want us to consider for this conversation is this. Is it possible for Christians who hold to a historically Christian view of marriage to truly love LGBT people without changing their theology of marriage? This is one of the most pressing questions in the church today. Parents with LGBT kids want to know, can I truly love my kid without changing my beliefs? Christians want to know, can I love my LGBT friends without changing my theology? LGBT people themselves want to know, can I really be loved in the church by people who hold to a historically Christian view of marriage? Now, it's one thing for me, a straight Christian, to say Christians don't need to change their view of marriage to love LGBT people. The question is, what do actual LGBT people themselves say? I'll never forget asking my friend Drew Harper, who's gay, this very question. I said, do you think that Christians who hold to a historically Christian view of marriage can truly love LGBT people? This is what he said. I 100% believe that Christians can love and honor LGBT people, truly love and honor LGBT people without changing their theology. LGBT people and Christian people can think that the other is wrong, 
and still see the other as human. I see it in my own life because when I bring my gay friends over to my house, they know that my parents disagree with their sexuality. They know that my parents have certain moral qualms about them and they come over to my house scared. They come over to my house thinking that my parents are these monsters and then they come and they get fed and they get asked honest questions about their lives. They get not interrogated, okay, but they, they get asked honest, sincere questions about what are you doing and, 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 and what excites you and who are you? And, and then they feel the warmth and the love that comes from two people who see them as human beings. And when they leave my house, they're changed. They may still think that evangelical Christianity is a threat to the future of America. They may still think that the Republican Party and the moral majority and James Dobson are the worst things to happen since the Black Plague. But they do know two living flesh and blood evangelical Christians who have welcomed them into their home and made them feel like a human being. And so now they're not so sure about everything. So I've seen it happen. I know it can happen. And this isn't just one isolated perspective. A few years ago, there was a massive study done on the religious background of LGBT people. And this study showed that 83% of the LGBT community was raised in the Christian church, and 51% of them have left the church by the time they were 18 years old. Now, why do you think they left? Some people will say, well, they left because of the church's theology, the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman. But that's not what LGBT people themselves said. Only 3%, 3% said they left the church for theological reasons, doctrines related to marriage and sexuality. What I found in the church that is harmful is this idolization of marriage, this idolization of romance and love and of family. And what I mean by that is that um, I think what we see happening in churches is um, that you know people are constantly looking uh, for a romantic partner. People are lo- constantly looking to get married. People are constantly living in this culture where they feel like they're incomplete um, or they can't serve God fully or they can't fully be a Christian unless they, they find somebody to marry. Especially as somebody who comes from an Asian background um, where family is basically everything. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've come back to church, you know, from college or from my travels um, and had people ask, you know, like, have you found a boyfriend yet? Have you found a girlfriend yet? Whatever it might be, you know. Um, People are constantly asking each other these questions, you know. People are constantly teasing each other about it. People are constantly trying to set each other up. Um, And we're constantly defining these these ways in which we're supposed to live as well. We're constantly defining um, what a man should be, um, what a woman should be, um, what a woman can and cannot do. And I just feel like we've developed this culture in church that idolizes marriage, that idolizes love and romance and even sex sometimes. And when we do that, we end up marginalizing, especially LGBT people, but also single people in the church too. We end up creating this culture where you're seen as deficient, or as incomplete if you're not married. Um, and I, that's something I think we need to change in the church. That's something that I, I, I do believe that is maybe even more inherently harmful um, to LGBT people. The problem isn't a theology of marriage. It's the church's posture toward LGBT people. There's nothing within a traditional Christian theology of marriage that denies people the fundamental right to be human, to flourish as image bearers of their creator. Now, some people are going to balk at that statement. How can gay people flourish without marrying the partner they desire? After all, aren't they born gay and shouldn't they just be who God's created them to be? I mean, these are really powerful questions, but here's a couple things to consider. First, the Bible never says that inborn desires justify behavior. Even if a desire feels innate and unchangeable and part of who you are, this doesn't in itself mean that God wants us to act on those desires. And just because we have desires that are inborn doesn't mean God put them there. We are all born into a fallen world and our desires don't automatically align with God's will, even if we can trace them back to our birth. Another problem with the born that way claim is that the scientific evidence doesn't actually say that people are simply born gay. Now, it's true that we don't choose our sexual attractions. I've never met a gay person who said, I chose to be gay, just like I've never met a straight person who chose to become straight. But just because we don't choose our attractions doesn't mean that we are born with them. 
Most scientists, in fact, say that same-sex attraction is a byproduct of both nature and nurture, or biological and environmental influences. Now, regardless of how nature and nurture shape sexual orientation, the fact is LGBT people themselves especially need the church to be their family if they're going to flourish as humans. They can't just be told no, no to a same-sex partner, no to gay sex. They need to know what they're saying yes to. Several of my gay friends tell me, I can live without sex, but I can't live without love and intimacy. You see, relationships that are filled with love and intimacy, true love and genuine intimacy don't require sex. This is why the New Testament elevates both singleness and spiritual kinship. We serve a single savior who embodied human flourishing as a single person. And Jesus taught us in Mark 10, 29 to 30, that even though discipleship is incredibly hard and will cost you everything, we will reap the blessing of a spiritual family in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. We look around us and we see all these people, you know, getting into relationships, you know, um, looking forward to marriage, you know, having kids um, and having this traditional definition of a family unit. And we just see a lot of richness to us, um, a lot of richness to what they are able to, to have and to share with one another. But as an LGBT person, we, we, we cry out to God. <laughs> we cry out to God and we say, we have left everything to follow you. We have left all of that behind. All our hopes and dreams for um, getting married, you know, having a partner, having kids. We've left all of that behind to follow you. And of course, Jesus looks at us lovingly and says um, that with great sacrifice comes great joy and reward in heaven. I thought that being celibate meant that I was going to be alone for the rest of my life. But Jesus was making sure to keep me far from that. He was providing friends in every corner of my life. Christian, non-Christian, um, new friends, old friends, friends from near and friends from far. And when those friends weren't available, when those friends weren't around, Jesus said he would come and meet me himself and how he has. Christians pursuing celibacy will face difficulties in life, but these difficulties can be joined with an abundance of love and intimacy if the church can embody the reward of spiritual kinship that Jesus intends us to be. As we saw earlier, most LGBT people were raised in the church, and most have left. The ones that left did so for relational reasons. So who are the same-sex attracted or LGBT people at your church today? who might not be there tomorrow unless they receive love. So, so that video is part of a series that's on uh, Right Now Media, which you're, you have access to if, uh, um, if you want. You're welcome to go and watch the full series. And can we turn that? You're going to hit escape. Okay, so the reason I want to show that video because I can stand up here and talk, but you need to hear from other people besides me. You need to hear from people that have different experiences and are pursuing God in holiness. And as we wrap this up and we think about grace and truth, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we ought to do? First of all, we need to be open to relationship. Like Jesus hung out with the sinners of his day, tax collectors, prostitutes. And there was a prostitute pouring perfume on his feet. Everybody was sent back like, if he knew what kind of woman that was, like, shouldn't he know better? Why would he do that? But these people were drawn to him. He treated them as human beings, and he called them to discipleship and faithfulness and holiness before God. We need to be ready to listen and learn and serve and speak the truth in love. This is what we are called to do. And I'm just going to sum up everything that we've, that we've covered today. I'm sure you have other questions and there are other things that, that we could talk about. But just as an overview, as we wrestle with what it means to be holy before God in the area of our sexuality, we need to understand that Scripture teaches that sexual intimacy is designed for the husband and wife relationship. 
that you can be single and holy and you can be married and holy. One state is not more desirable than the other. God has different gifts. And we accept those gifts and we use our gifts to serve other people. That is the consistent teaching of Scripture that same-sex sexual relationships are prohibited. They are contrary to what God intended. They are against His design and they are wrong. It's important that we remember no matter what our desires are, our desires to be married, our desires to have sex, our desires to eat more ice cream, whatever the desire is, simply because we have a desire doesn't make that thing right. Our desires are not the determining factor when it comes to morality. We're all sinners. We all have sinful desires. That we've all fallen short of God's grace, of God's glory, and we are in need of that grace, and we are in need of that forgiveness. We come humbly as human beings because we're all in the same boat, and we seek God. We are called to compassion and faithfulness. The Word of God says that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Not arguments, not derision, not ridicule, not mocking. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. And the church should be a place of healing and a place of family for everyone in need of grace and truth. You, me, anyone else. We come before God and we offer our offer ourselves completely, both body and soul, to live a holy life before him in whatever condition that we find ourselves. And we allow him to reveal himself to us and meet us where we are and reveal his love and kindness and peace and joy. And this is what we're called to as the body of Christ. Would you pray with me today? Father God, thank you for this time to study your word and to consider its implications in our lives, Lord. We don't want to be simply hearers of the Word, but we want to be doers of your Word. And God, you have lavished amazing love on us. God, in our brokenness and in our sin, when we feel unworthy, you are there and you're calling us to come to you. Your arms are open and your heart is full of compassion and forgiveness. And so, God, we, we come before you and wherever we have hurts, Lord, especially as we've talked about in the area of our sexuality today, you are there to restore the brokenness. And God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. And Lord, that we would live a life of grace and truth no matter where we find ourselves, no matter um, who we're dealing with. Lord, whatever the situation, God, we pray that your light and love would shine forth in your church as we seek to honor you. God, we pray that you would help us to live in a way that brings glory to you and points to the love of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.